Have you guys ever jeopardized something? A relationship, a job, a plan, something. Something where what you've done has put you in a place where you think that things are absolutely irredeemable. You know that in your mind you just drove that car off the cliff and there is nothing that can, anyone can do to recover it. And so in your guilt, you know maybe that one lie or that one action or that one thought or that one act of deception was just too big to be redeemed. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? It's that thing that maybe you're still embarrassed to talk about. That thing that you don't want to open yourself up to and let yourself be known to other people. That thing that you still feel shame over. And you think that it's that thing that broke the camel's back. Well, this morning we see that according to God's good judgment and his righteousness and his love and his mercy, things are always redeemable. Not in your strength, but in God's strength. It's wonderful, isn't it? You know, that, that, that guilt that we might feel, that shame that we might feel, that embarrassment we just might feel knowing that we just compromised something. It reminds us that Things are not redeemable. I mean, I got things that I've done 20 years ago that I still might be embarrassed to share to other people. And it tells me that in myself, things are not redeemable. I can't do anything about it. But the good news is that God, in fact, can. Things are always redeemable, even when we might think that they aren't. When we have sinned against the creator, the infinitely holy righteous and just creator we have to remember that we cannot redeem ourselves i mean this is the nature of the gospel isn't it that no matter what we do in our sin against our very own creator who made us to be in a relationship with him when he steps down from his throne to take on flesh and live amongst us that's god redeeming even the very most embarrassing things we've done even the most sinful things we've done god redeems but of course he doesn't do that against your will he doesn't do that against your will it requires faith and repentance so if you've done something if you find yourself in that situation where you feel you've jeopardized something so bad remember that God can still redeem it if you repent and believe. That's the nature of the gospel. We're walking through the book of Genesis, and today we come to Genesis chapter 20. So go ahead and turn there now. And here Abraham makes a big, a massive mistake. He jeopardizes things once again. He jeopardizes God's plan even, or so it seems. And so much is at stake here in this very chapter. If you guys remember, God had promised Abraham that he would have a great land and numerous offspring and that someone from his line would be a blessing to the world. The problem, though, is that the fulfillment of these promises hinges on the very thing he and Sarah can't do. They cannot have children. They are barren, and God purposefully chose this barren couple to bring about his plans. I mean, it's truly amazing. So you understand that these that the blessings are at stake in their very bodies. Without a child, there's no future kingdom. 
There's no numerous offspring. There's no blessing to the nations if you have no offspring. And so Abraham and Sarah wait year after year after year, 25 years almost. They're waiting for God to fulfill this promise. And so sometimes they come up with really bad ideas and they say, look, okay, Sarah, I'm Sarah. I can't have children. So Abraham, you take this other woman and you go have a child with her. By Genesis chapter 20, they've been waiting for almost a quarter of a century. A quarter of a century. They've been waiting for God to, to fulfill his promises, for God to redeem and move. In the midst of their struggles, this is a great and wonderful thing. In the midst of their struggles, God appears to Abraham and Sarah, as we've seen in previous weeks before. Uh, and he brings them a word of hope. So go ahead and look in Genesis 18, verse 10. Now, keep in mind here, this is after the many highs and lows of Abraham and Sarah's faith in God. Yet God is faithful. He comes to their aid and he says, I will surely, surely without doubt. It's not maybe it's not might. He says, I surely will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So imagine, OK, Genesis chapter 20, they find themselves within months of God finally fulfilling his promise under 12 months away you'd figure they would have had renewed vigor right to fight and cling to the promises that they would maybe get their tents ready that sarah would be so eagerly nesting and abraham the good husband hopefully he'd be encouraging her to do that but unfortunately we see abraham making a massive mistake a mistake that some of you guys might think is irredeemable beyond redemption but thank God, the big idea from today's passage is that God's plans are never thwarted. God's plans can never be thwarted. So we might struggle with unfaithfulness, but God never does. And yet he is always faithful. He made a covenant with Abraham. And so regardless of what Abraham does, as Abraham walks in faith and repentance by the Spirit's power, trusting in God, God will fulfill his promises. Okay, so what did Abraham do? What's this massive mistake? he made how does he jeopardize the plans of god look there at genesis chapter 20 verses 1 and 2 i'll go ahead and read that from there this is after god had judged sodom and gomorrah from there abraham journeyed toward the territory of the negev and lived between kadesh and shore and he sojourned in gerar okay not a problem so far so we might think <clears throat> but then verse 2 it says and abraham said of sarah his wife she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. There she goes again, right? This is, this is familiar, right? The last time that Abraham sojourned, it did not turn out well. So in Genesis chapter 12, what happened there was Abraham, or Abram as he was known then before God changed his name. Abram and Sarah, they leave the promised land. And they sojourned southward to Egypt. And for fear of his life, Abram tells Sarah, his wife, uh, to say when they get to Egypt, say that you are my sister. Now, we know that it's not an outright lie, as our passage today will explain. They actually have the same father, but different mothers. So it's not an outright lie that she is his sister or half sister. But their sojournings go terribly wrong because of their lie. Pharaoh goes ahead and takes her into his household. Now, we aren't told specifically if Pharaoh actually has sexual relationship with her. But we're left wondering. Major mistake here. 
God then judges Pharaoh. And you, you remember that Abraham was supposed to be a blessing to the nations. There it seems like he's all a curse. God brings his judgment on Pharaoh. And then what, what, what is required for Pharaoh to get to, uh, sorry, for Abraham to go back to the promised land? It's for the pagan king to kick him out of Egypt. You get out of my land and finally they go all the way back up. That's Genesis 12. Here in Genesis 20, it reminds us that some sins die very hard. Abraham and Sarah were in the promised land, but then they pick up to move. We're not told why, but they do in fact go head towards the direction of Egypt. Not all the way, but they settle in a place called Gerar, sort of in the southwest direction from where they were, the Oaks of Mamre, if you guys remember. So in approaching the city, they must have come up with the same genius lie. And within the first two verses of chapter 20, Sarah is fumbled into the king of Gerar's hand again because of Abraham's bad, poor leadership. This is not good. And keep in mind there, within a year of Isaac's arrival, he is jeopardizing so much, so many things here in this move. So many things are at stake. Number one, his leadership, for one, is at stake. I mean, he's supposed to be a leader of a nation, but he makes some pretty terrible decisions. Second, Sarah's integrity is at stake. Not to mention also the parentage of the baby. So if Abraham and Sarah are to have a baby, but then here goes Sarah's, Sarah into the hands of the king of Gerar, then we have some legitimate questions if they were to have a sexual relationship. You're left wondering, well, who exactly is the father of this baby? Is it Abraham or is it the king of Gerar, a pagan king? And also, very interestingly enough, as Christians who stand on this side of the cross, we know as we read scripture that what is also at stake here is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Or so it would seem. We know that, that Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. He is the one that would be the blessing to the nations because he alone dies on the cross for the sins of everyone who would repent and believe. The sins of the nations. It doesn't matter what kind of race or ethnic background. Anyone who trusts in Jesus can be saved. So even Jesus himself, so it would seem, is at stake here in Abraham's move. And Abraham again looks like he is screwing things up again. Let's see what God does. Look at verse 3. But God, how's that for God's plan can't be thwarted. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken for. She is a man's wife. Behold, you are a dead man. Now, how many of you guys would like to have a dream where the Lord himself shows up and he just says, behold, you are as good as dead because of this thing that you've done. And, and, and Abimelech, he pleads innocence, right? It's very interesting there. Here you have the nations. And you have a person of God who's now sojourning in that nation underneath this pagan king. And he, ple he pleads innocence. Look there in verse 4. Now Abimelech had not approached her. That is, he hadn't approached her for sex. He had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Now he's not claiming entire innocence. He's not saying that I am without sin. Absolutely. He's saying in this dealing, I was sincerely duped. Look there. He goes on and says, uh, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? So that's Abraham. Did he not himself? And then he says, and she herself said he is my brother. So here, both parties of Abraham and Sarah, this couple, 
both of them are implicated here in this sin. They are responsible. And he says, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. So here, clearly, he's saying, I've done this in the integrity of my heart, the innocence of my hands. And God recognizes that this is the, this is the case based on uh, what Abimelech says. Look there in verses 6 and 7. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now return. Now then, return the man's wife, for, she, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. You see God's faithfulness here? Even though Abraham and Sarah, they came up with a very bad plan here, God is still involved bringing about his plan of redemption. His plans cannot be thwarted. And it's not only in the big picture thing. So yes, God comes up with a large plan to save his people. The large plan that Abraham will have a land, that he will have many children, and that someone from his line will be a blessing. But here in the particulars, I mean, you guys notice what God here does to ensure that his plan continues to roll on. He personally, it says that, but God came to Abimelech in a dream. He arrived. Abraham and Sarah screw up. And so God comes to the king of Gerar, this pagan king, and he reveals himself to him. Not only that, but you, look, you see in verse 6 what, what God is doing? God said, it was I who kept you from sinning against. He doesn't say Sarah or Abraham. He says me. So it's like God's plan is that he would do this thing with Abraham and Sarah and even they, even though they're making mistakes, seemingly irredeemable mistakes, yet God comes to the situation and he says, no, actually, this is my plan. I kept you, the king of Gerar, from sinning against me. This here is God's restraining grace. Not only does God appear, he makes himself known, not only does God reveal, but here he restrains this king. Abimelech is his name. Restraining grace. Even though he's sinful, he is not as sinful as he could have been had God not preserved him from sinning here. And God, he offers salvation basically to him in verse 7. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. Now salvation isn't specifically mentioned here, but throughout the passage we get this understanding that Abimelech actually desires to follow the Lord who has revealed himself to him. So it presumes, it assumes that in going to the prophet Abraham, he is actually being forgiven. He's actually obeying the Lord and his commands. And he says, but if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So here he basically offers salvation through intercession. And it says that Abraham is a prophet who stands as a mediator between the king of Gerar and God himself. You see that Abraham struggles with uh, faithfulness, unfaithfulness specifically, but God is always faithful. Of course, if we step back from the story, we would expect nothing less. I mean, when you are the creator of everything and all things are created for you, specifically Jesus, as it says in Colossians, you therefore are entitled to everything and you are threatened by absolutely nothing. 
we see this here, that God is faithful. In this chapter, we see it in the gospel of Jesus. So not only, not, not even the most determined haters of God can stop God's plan of salvation. Can stop God from fulfilling the covenant that he made with Abraham. Instead, we see the creator of the universe in perfect control and composure, bringing about the redemption of his people. And Ephesians 1 talks about this, how he is not threatened by even the most, the most hateful haters of God here. Uh, it says that he made known to us, so that there's God divinely and sovereignly revealing his will to people according to his purpose. So it is his purpose. It is his will. After all, he owns it. He's entitled to everything. So he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Who's doing the setting forth? It's God himself as a plan for the fullness of time. So here you have the Lord of history over all things, bringing about his plan that he himself had hatched before all time into eternity past. And then at the right time, just the right time. So he sends Jesus Christ, his son, fully man, fully God to take on flesh, to die on the cross for sins. And what's what's so amazing is that even the most hateful of haters, God uses their sins somehow in his justice, knowing that he's always just to bring about the salvation of his people and the death of his son. God's plans can't be thwarted. As a Christian, you know, we can take great comfort that our sins, too, will not derail the plans of God. So some of you guys might consider yourselves Christians. And you know yourself to made to have made some pretty serious mistakes. And again, you know what that's like for the monkey on your back of your guilt and your conscience to chase you, to never let you go. But here, praise God that regardless of this big mess up of Abraham and Sarah, God still uses it to bring about his plan. Even more than that, in some mysterious way, in God's providence, he uses our mistakes and sins to accomplish good. That doesn't mean that we ought to sin on purpose just to see what God's going to do. But he even uses these things to bring about good. And that's what we read of right here. God uses this, though Abraham had sinned, to point Abimelech to salvation. God could have done the same had Abraham not sinned. So he could have saved Abimelech and the people. But, you know, my point is that he didn't, but he still used Abraham and Sarah's mistake to point Abimelech eventually to salvation. Abraham sinned, yet God intervenes divinely and says to Abimelech, you go talk to that man, that very man who made the mistake, that very man who brought you into the sin, and he will pray for you and you will live. Now that just, requ that just requires so much humility on Abimelech's part, humility on Abraham's part, and a recognition that both of them, sinners though they are, live underneath the authority of God. God uses a sinner, even though he seriously sinned and he's jeopardizing a whole bunch of things. He uses the events and he uses the man to continue to show himself to be gracious. Incredible, isn't it? That God is sovereign and that even though we make mistakes and even though we might feel like our sins are beyond redemption. God even uses those to give more grace if we repent and believe and are obeying god which is what abraham does and it's what abimelech does and we see that next with the death sentence over his head 
Abimelech goes and seeks out the prophet Abraham. And Abimelech, frankly, rebukes him. Okay, we know something's going wrong. Abraham's supposed to be a blessing to the nations, but the nations are now rebuking the man of God? Look at verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them these things. So this is his whole house. Everyone. Because they're kind of implicated too here, as, as that's what the Lord says according to his judgment. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what, you have, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? So you see how here this king and the kingdom, the king and his people, the king and his citizens, it's hard to detach. He's saying, look, you have done the sin against us all. You have done to me things that ought not to be done, prophet Abraham. You're coming into my land and you and your wife are lying to us. You've brought this in. What have you done? What have you seen that has made you do such a thing? I pray that Abraham was convicted here. The people of God being rebuked by the outsider. He knows that in this matter, right? Abimelech knows. He knows here in this matter that he is above reproach. But Abraham, all of the approach is on him. I pray that we as Christians, as First Baptist Church, would never find ourselves in a situation where we need to be rebuked by a non-Christian. And I pray also that in all our conduct, we would be known for our integrity. So an effort to apply this passage to our lives, ask yourselves, is there ever a time in your life, as you just go about the regular dealings in your life, even in this last week, where you would be hesitant to tell people around you that you are a follower of Jesus? Maybe as people watch your internet surfing, would you be embarrassed if non-Christians were around you, uh, watching you? I have the story. Um, I was in a public library in Huntington Beach, and uh, my sister is dating this film editor, and he had won some award. He regularly wins awards for editing all sorts of stuff, uh, music videos, commercials. And uh, so on Facebook, she had um, put forward this video and said, oh, you know, my, my boyfriend such and such, she edited this video. And, and the, the, the original you know, picture, at least that you see as you're scrolling down, was innocent. So I was like, oh, awesome. You know, I know this guy. I want to support my sister. I want to support her boyfriend. Click on it, right? I'm in a public library. And this thing was the most raciest commercial I have ever seen, ever, in my life. And I was like, turn it off! Turn it off! Because I know that there's people watching, you know, people around me. And who knows, you know, they might know who I am. I might have interacted with them before. I might have told them that I teach at Biola. I might have told them that I want to go into the ministry. I had to maybe evangelize to them that I trust in Jesus who saves me from my sin. And here I am watching this, you know, full screen thing. <laughs> raciest commercial I've ever seen. I would have been embarrassed had I watched the whole entire thing. I mean, I was kind of embarrassed just trying to shut it off. I would have been embarrassed if I had told people that I was a Christian doing those things. And I'm pretty sure the librarian, had she known what I was doing, might have come around and at the very least told me, hey, you might want to go watch that somewhere else. What about all the little things of your life that you find yourself doing? How about your driving? You're on the freeway. Somebody cuts you off. 
Would you be embarrassed to tell all those people around you that you are a follower of Jesus? Or might they rebuke you, even if you are not at fault? What about what you do when you blow off steam from work? You come home after a long days, a long, hard day of work. What are you doing there to blow off steam? Does it, does it represent Jesus in a way where you could freely invite the whole neighborhood who knows, hopefully, that you're a believer and say, this is what I do to blow off steam from work? How about the ways in which you go about making money? Are you above reproach? Or do, you, do you work in such a way where even the non-Christian would be able to say, that man has integrity and of a kind that's not really known amongst the world? We as Christians want to be able to conduct ourselves in such a way where we are beyond suspicion. And we want to live in a way where we are living above reproach. Of course, the goal in it all, the goal in this living is not that we would live well, but it's who we are living for as we live well, namely Jesus Christ. So our lives are are to be a, a wonderful testimony and a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he saves us from those sins, that I am no longer enslaved to those sins, even though we might stumble and fall, we repent and we believe. But if we do ever find ourselves in a situation where we need to be rebuked, which I assume we all will because we are not perfect and to expect perfection is incorrect. What do we do? I got two things here. Number one, take that rebuke as evidence of God's grace and allowed evidence. You know, it's not like a Christian coming to you and saying, hey, brother, You know, what you're doing is kind of off. This is a non-Christian who has a completely different set of morals fundamentally. And that person is telling you what you are doing is not right. And they may even say that from the perspective of saying what you are doing as a Christian. I, I know Christian. I don't believe it. But what you're doing according to Christianity is not right. So take that rebuke as a as a wonderful shower of God's grace to you. God's plans for his people cannot be thwarted, and he is showing you that in those very moments, that he wants you to live in a particular way. God is reminding us of his plans for us. We're reminded of the very God that we are to live for. We're reminded of his very ways, that we live for the sake of his name as we live according to his his godly holiness. Again, sometimes these reminders are gentle. Sometimes they are tough. As we are reminded and convicted, this ought to drive us to number two, confession of sins. And very quickly. You guys ever, you guys know that feeling when you know you've done something wrong and then someone addresses that to you. And then there's something in you that really just wants to move towards defending yourself. It's in that moment, in that split second, you think, Jesus, help me. (laughs) As one of my friends would say regularly, Jesus, take the wheel, because if I were driving, it would not be good. So we of all people in that very moment should be realizing, God, give me grace, and I know I'm wrong. We as Christians ought to be doing this because Christians by nature are the very ones who should be the first people uh, to admit that we are in need. And so therefore, we should be the first people to go ahead and confess our sins. Now, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, perfection is not demanded here on earth. Or I should say, perfection should not be expected here on earth. An increasing growth in holiness should be, but perfection, no. Perfection comes at the end. 
Increasing holiness, absolutely. So for you to expect your not to expect your Christian friend to be perfect is just not really a. I mean, God Himself doesn't really um, say that we're going to reach that level. So for you to have that expectation on your Christian friend, is, you know, doesn't really match up. So there, be gracious and recognize that your Christian friend is a sinner just like yourself. Unfortunately, confessing sin is not Abraham's strength, as we see in this passage. Look at verses 11 to 13. So, uh, sorry, go back to 10 here. We'll read the end of Abimelech's rebuke. Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because, oh, here we go. Abraham could say many things. He could say, I struggle with walking by faith because I like to walk by sight sometimes. But he doesn't say that. He said, I did this because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Now, how would you like your so a sojourner to walk up to your door and say, I had to lie because I thought all of you guys were going to kill me. He clearly assesses the king of Gerar in a very poor light here. He says that they're just going to do that. Now, Pharaoh, um, he does the same thing there. But that's what he says. He says, you know, I thought you all were going to kill me. But then his fear, look what it does then. It, it leads to a justification of his lie. He fears for his life, and so he justifies his lie. Look there in verse 12. Besides, so besides all that murderous stuff, besides my fear, I don't need to think about that. She really is my sister. Besides, she indeed is my sister, the daughter of my father, through, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So, you know, is this a straight out lie? No, it's not a straight out lie. Is there a bit of truth to this? Yes, there is a bit of truth to this. But the very fact um, here that, that Abimelech, the pagan king, who does fear God to some degree, has to rebuke Abraham, this is wrong. We've already seen that it's wrong in, in chapter 12. Primarily, most fundamentally, she is his wife, as previous chapters has have referred to so so the fear of for his life leads then to the justification of his lie he says no I, th this is legitimate here and then look at verse 13 i'll go ahead and read that and so you got fear then you have justification then he says and when god caused me to wander from my father's house I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. So apparently they did this ruse everywhere they went. They were both in on it. And it was all really because he doubted the promises of God. If God is going to build a nation off of one man, if God is going to give a son to a man, you figure that he's going to preserve him long enough so that he could actually bear a child with a woman. But here he's doubting. And here he blames. The fear leads to justification of his lie, and then it leads to blaming. You notice that there? God caused me to wander. It is true that God called Abraham out of the land of Ur in the very beginning. But God doesn't call him to go to Egypt. He doesn't call him from Scripture. There's no evidence that God calls him to go to the land of Gerar and then go ahead and make this lie. So we sense a little bit of blame as he walks in his father Adam's footsteps. 
You know what kind of apology this is? This is a you caught me apology. A you caught me apology. It's an apology that doesn't really want to admit guilt. And even when you do admit guilt, you do so only because you have nowhere else to go. Right? In that lie, you know that you've told, you know, once you tell one lie, you do then have to begin telling a lot of other lies when people start pressing. And you know that you can't go that way because you already told that lie. You can't go this way because you already told that lie. You can't go that way. You can't go this way. And so then you just defend. You don't confess, 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 confess. You defend here. That's what Abraham is doing. His defenses are up. He needs to find some way out because he can't create a new escape route. They're all sort of blocked up. And you fear. You fear being found out. And then in defending, you justify. No, really, all these things are legitimate. And then in your self-righteousness, that's what leads you to justify your self-righteousness, you blame. Let's not be like Abraham. Justifying and defending actions. I mean, did you notice that in, in all that he says here, in all of his explanation and his reason, he doesn't really answer Abimelech's first question. What have you done to us? Or he misses the intention of the question. What have you done to us? This is a personal offense here. It's not a logical explanation that the king of Gerar is asking for. He's asking for the offense to be removed there. Not by explanation, but by confession. What have you done to us? Clearly, Abraham doesn't really take the time to answer. The story moves then. Abimelech writes his wrong. Abimelech writes his wrong. And he does so by giving him possessions, dwelling, and protecting Sarah's integrity. It's interesting here that you see Abimelech going about, um, in some ways, protecting the promises of God. Or at least God using Abimelech to protect the promises of God. How is Abraham going to start and establish a kingdom? Well, he does so because Pharaoh... Gave him a lot of stuff. Here, the king of Gerar is giving him a lot of stuff. And then he actually protects Sarah's integrity. Abraham, man. I want to be hard on Abraham, but I actually find myself here with him. Look at verse 14. So let's see what Abimelech does. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham. And returned Sarah, his wife, to him. So there's possessions. Of course, it's his wife. He returns her as well. Verse 15. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Pick the choicest of places for you to dwell in. Basically, what's mine is yours now. And to Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone... That you are vindicated. So yay for Abimelech, right? God tells him to go and seek prayer for, uh, from Abraham. That this prophet would pray for him. He's obeying God's commands. He's giving him. He's trying to right this wrong. He's vindicating Sarah's name before everybody. He's doing exactly what God had asked him to do. The irony is that Abimelech seems to have a stronger pulse on Sarah's vindication and integrity than Abraham does. Abraham says, so to speak, look, the people might strike me, Sarah, 
So it's worth the risk of letting you go into their family. It's worth it because they're going to strike me. Abimelech says, God is going to strike me, he says to Sarah, out of my family because you are legitimately part of his. You see here the fear of man in Abraham and then the fear of God in this pagan king here that he's learning. And his fear of man, Abraham's fear of man, leads him to doubt God's promises, which leads him then to sin, which leads him at times to be a pretty poor witness. I mean, the foreign king is being a blessing to the people of God when the people of God are supposed to be a blessing to the nations. The wonderful thing we got to remember is nothing is beyond redemption here. The very mistakes of Abraham and Sarah, though he's jeopardizing some, or one could say the very savior of the world, here in this movement here, jeopardizing the plans of God, the Abrahamic covenant, yet God intervenes to make things right. Look at 17 and 18, and we see what happens. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife the fe- and female slaves, so that they could bear children, or so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abraham is supposed to be a blessing to the nations, and by God's grace, by the end of the chapter, though he had put many things in jeopardy, God still uses him to do exactly what God intended him to be, a blessing to the nations. So this ought to be a warning to us, and it ought to be an encouragement, right, as we're looking at Abraham and to see the ups and downs of this real-life faith. Keep in mind here that Abraham in Scripture, according to Hebrews, is a man of faith who trusts in God. So even though there might be some blips, even though they might be really large at the time, you know, by God's grace, at the end of the day, God still will look on Abraham and say, that is a man of faith. Which means for us, as we make mistakes, we got to go back to scripture and see, man, even though Abraham was such a sinner and I am very much like him, God will still redeem my actions and me. If I continue to repent and believe and obey God, just as Abraham did. This here is not a perfect faith. But it certainly has a upward trajectory. As um, one of uh, this biblical counselor, he put it this way. He says, you know, sometimes our lives might feel like a yo-yo, always going up and down. Uh, But the amazing thing is that, you know, God has us and we are sort of going up and down in his hand. But God himself is sort of walking upstairs. And so though we might go up and down, we are constantly, by God's grace, sort of going up those stairs, uh, approaching the final end by God's grace, according to Jesus Christ. So even though you guys might feel like you are jeopardizing something, God's intention for you, if you are a believer, know that God is carrying you. He is preserving you. When we stand to give account before God, our lives will play out much like Abraham's. There will be highs where by God's grace, you know, we're living by faith. We're trusting in him. Though God didn't reveal exactly what he was to inherit, it says in Hebrews that he kept his eyes on the city that was to come. It says that Sarah herself, too, was a woman who believed and trusted in the Lord there in First Peter 3. Our lives are going to reveal some really some high points by the grace of God. It's going to also reveal, you know, the playback, the video playback. It'll show that our faith is shaky too, just like theirs is. 
But praise God that though we might struggle, God is always faithful and he will certainly bring his plans to completion using sinful people like ourselves to do that. In this case, Abraham prays to God for Abimelech and those living in Gerar. So though Abraham starts off in a bad place in the beginning, in the first two verses, by the end of it, he's doing exactly what God wants him to do, and he's being exactly what God intended him to be. That is a blessing to the nation, specifically by interceding and praying for Abimelech. Here, Abraham is a a mediator, not only a mediator that stands between God and man, but the God-appointed mediator. And it's this role here, his role as a prophet, by the way, this is the first usage of the word prophet, and he is the, the, the first prophet there is. Um, it's his role here that points us to Jesus Christ. Abraham was not a perfect prophet as no human person would be. No human after him would be a perfect prophet or perfect priest. But nevertheless, he was God's appointed mediator. Abraham and every prophet priest that would follow him, they're all pointers to the ultimate prophet and priest that is Jesus Christ. The perfect mediator. He is the only true prophet, the only true priest who would be able to perfectly reveal God's word and to be a revelation of God himself to the people. The only one, though though he sojourned for a little bit of time here in a pagan world, would never sin against his God, his Lord, and his Father. But instead, though he to some degree feared Yet he entrusted himself to God, praying, acknowledging that if it is your will, I certainly will do it. And it says in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He is the only perfect media, the only one who would truly be a blessing to the nations because salvation is found in him and no one else alone. So we, like Abraham, have all sinned. We earn for ourselves a just condemnation, according to the word, eternal hell. But God says, if you repent and believe, if you follow me and acknowledge me as the Lord of everything, the one who owns and has rights over you and the one who personally loves you and does everything for our good, then we have this great salvation, forgiveness of sins. Jesus himself bore what we ought to have borne on the cross. He bore our sins. He bore the wrath that we deserved so that everyone who would trust in him and repent And believe in him would have that very salvation. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead, showing showing the world that the payment has been paid. We, therefore, are redeemed, regardless of what sins we've committed. That just shows how wonderfully, beautifully, the, the divine intervention that we see in Genesis 20 is ultimately seen in the cross, where God intervenes and saves sinners. Nothing, no matter what you have done, is beyond redemption if you repent and believe.